That's tough. Each player has his or her own playing style, and if you look at the elite players, you know, some are maybe very aggressive, some are more defensive, some are more strategic, some are more positional, and um, I think with with the like, maybe at the very end result, the question always is, can chess be figured out? Can chess be solved? Hi, and welcome to And If Love Remains. I am here again with my good friend, Elias Pedersen. How are you doing, Elias? Welcome doing to the great, show. Mike. Thanks. I, I love doing these things with you. It's, uh, it's so much fun. It's a total blast. And and this is our long-awaited part two of, uh, of chess. Uh, and I'm very excited to talk to you about this. And, and um, last time, we, we kind of went into some of, the, some of the rules and some of the background, some of the... the um, uh, you know how the, the the rating systems work a little bit, so I'd encourage anybody um, to go check out that episode. Um, there's a lot of great information there. Um, it's it's uh, Dr. Elias Axel Pedersen, the game of kings chess. So check out that episode not too long back. Um, but this is our part two, and and I want to um, talk maybe a little bit about the psychological some of the some of the kind of cool ideas and some of the things we can gain from chess but let me ask you first sure. your your experience in, in tournaments and and how they work and um can you kind of go into that a little bit yeah so chess tournaments i think <clears throat> i think a lot of people or few people have been to chess tr- tournaments i would say in the general public and the way it's portrayed in movies and shows uh it's quite quite a bit different although it gives some some idea and we'll certainly talk about queen's gambit and uh, and searching for Bobby Fischer, which do a pretty good job of portraying it. But uh, you know, you you go into a tournament. Uh, they're usually pretty long games. You know, you have your opponent that's uh, given to you. There's a called usually a Swiss pairing. That's what I'm used to playing. So they they divide the entire section. Let's say there are 200 people in a certain tournament. Um, usually you play by level. So my um, whatever my rating level, I know we talked about ratings last time. So whatever my class level would be, you know, class A, class B, right now I'm a class A player, then I would play with other class A players. And if there are 200 people in that tournament, they divide it in half. And then the top, uh, number one plays number 101, number two plays number 102, et cetera. And then when you, uh, when you get a win in a tournament, you get one point. When you get a loss, obviously zero points. And if you get a draw, where you both, uh, you know, it's even, or you just you have no material left, or you agree with your opponent that it's an even position, then you each get a half point, and you kind of accumulate those points, and then in each successive round, you play somebody that has your point level. So if I were to win in the first game, let's say I would play somebody else with one point, and if I were to draw in the second game, I'd play somebody else with one and a half points. Hmm, uh, but anyway, the last tournament I actually so it's like it's almost like an elaborate round robin in a way. Yeah, but see, so round robin, uh, those are those are for much smaller tournaments for okay. ten people or something because you you play everybody in a round robin, and so when you get to the very elite tournaments, which obviously I've I've never played in, those are invitation only and they're you know for for big names, but uh, then ten people in the tournament, you can play each person two times and you have twenty games. Uh, with two hundred people in a in a section, there's no way you could play everybody. So you usually have nine rounds in a in a pretty big tournament, and the last one I played in was nine rounds. Uh, it was the World Open, 
and it was in uh, Philadelphia. So that was in 2000. When did I play last? I can't remember. 2003, 2004, something like that. And uh, and I did pretty well. I was a B player at the time, so I played in the in the B section. And I uh, there were like 300 some odd people in the section. I think I tied for fourth place. Um, oh, wow. but that said, you know, there are a lot of ties. There are a lot of people at fourth, fourth place. So the first place winner out of nine points, usually if you get eight or even seven and a half, you can win a section because it's very hard to get, uh, nine, nine points total. Well, that means you, that means you won every, every, every round, game. right? Yeah. 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 You didn't lose a game. Is that, that's pretty rare. So typically these tournaments are won with eight points, you know, maybe eight and a half if you're, if you're really lucky or very strong. Um, and so I think the winner in that section did get eight or eight and a half. And then the second place got eight, let's say. And the third third got maybe seven and a half. But there are maybe three or four people that got seven and a half. So that right. was tied for that. And then in fourth place, there were 10 of us that got seven points or whatever. It was six and a half or seven points. So that prize money, it was a decent prize at that time, uh, but it was split 10 ways. So I, I basically just paid for my my trip. Uh, but my rating did go up quite substantially, so I right. became an A player. That that was a really fun tournament. They're grueling. I don't think a lot of people, again, understand just how grueling a chess tournament can be. They think, oh, well, you just kind of sit and think and move some pieces on a board. That's not very hard. But in typical chess tournaments, you know, especially at the elite level, um, they, they last about a week, maybe two weeks, and a typical grandmaster will lose five pounds or so during a tournament um, that that's not unheard of just because the amount of stress, you know, we lose weight when we're stressed, the amount of right. water you're expending. It's, it's after a six hour chess game, sitting there and concentrating for that long. Uh, it, it's amazing how much well, water and, you expend. And, and also people really don't know how much energy the brain uses. And right. if you're concentrating like that, it's, it, you are using a ton of, Burning a ton of calories. Oh, yeah, for, for sure. Yeah, just sitting there. And I, I, the longest game I ever played, I think, was in that tournament. But I had a five-and-a-half-hour game. Uh, and the longest I ever – I used to tell my kids because when I teach – when I taught chess, you know, they're mostly young kids. And they're very impulsive, and they just move immediately. You know, they don't really think. They might have 30 minutes for a game each, and they finish the whole game in three minutes because they've just moved quickly. So I said, take your time. Think about it, you know. Uh, and I always say, what do you think the longest I spent on a move was? I, I might have told you this in the last podcast, but uh, yeah. it was 45 minutes that <laughs> I spent thinking of what move. So tournaments are very grueling. Um, they're they're great fun. You know, there's a certain etiquette that is involved in tournaments. And uh, I think that was portrayed pretty well. Yeah, I was going to ask you because there's, you know, I know there's etiquette. For example, you know, um, some unwritten rules like in golf, you know, you don't you don't walk past a person's sight line on the on the putting green and and, right. and things like that. Like, you don't yell what, and shout and and scream, right. and Cheer, yeah. So Same what, in tennis, what, yeah. You have to be yeah. quiet. So in in chess is very strict. So uh, you cannot talk uh, in the in the tournament hall. Um, I mean, you can, if you have a, a dispute with your opponent or whatever, you, maybe you whisper, figure out a couple things or immediately call a tournament director. So you both have clocks. You might pause the clock and call the tournament director over to uh, work out the dispute. But there are, you know, a thousand people maybe in a tournament hall with all the sections, so 500 games, maybe more. And everybody's, you know, you hear clocks clicking. You try not to be too loud with that. No talking, no cell phones. Um, 
uh, at least on the top boards, those are all roped off. So you can't just huddle around and, and crowd them. Um, when the sections I play in aren't roped off, obviously. But yeah, there, it's just a lot of respect and you have to learn that. And even the kids that come in the scholastic tournaments, they're taught that sort of thing. So when I was 12 years old, that's the first tournament I played. Um, there were kids younger than me, sure, for sure. You're taught that you really have to sit, be quiet, concentrate, you know, respect other people. Uh, and it's it's quite an experience. So I love that atmosphere. Um, and and I, I love the rowdy side of chess too. People don't realize how rowdy you know, in, in the Skittles, Skittles room, which is um, usually to the side of the tournament hall, people go in and play, you know, speed chess and talk about their games and analyze things. And there's a is lot of trash like a, talking. And is it kind of like a green room, just like a, a relaxing, like, like just, just, you're not, you're not on the floor. And so you're just like doing your stuff. Is that yeah. kind of what that is? Yeah. And it's usually separated enough so that the sound doesn't go through, but it's, it's a big enough room where people can, can uh, play quick things and talk and, and, Kind of share their ideas and it's it's a great amount of fun to be at a chess tournament i mean there's so much going on but you know the the people that are really serious and really there um to play their games it's it's grueling and so if you have two games a day i played in the format where it's two games a day over the course of uh, five days so that's you know nine rounds basically uh and if you have two five hour you know you might play five uh ten or eleven hours of chess in a day and then go to bed you know, eat some dinner, go to bed and wake up the next day and play another 10 or 11 hours of chess. Wow. So, and for five days, it's, it's a lot of energy. So, but it's a lot of fun. So let's, let's talk about you. I mean, um, there's also, I can imagine quite a difference between being a player in a tournament like that and a, and a, and a spectator in a, in a, in a high stakes tournament. Um, what, what are, uh, some of the big, uh, you know, ex, uh, you know, things you've seen live, yeah. Um, there are two main highlights for tournaments that I think about. One was when I was really young, and I think this helped me get involved in chess. We were driving back from Denver to Albuquerque, where I grew up, and went through, I forgot, it was Colorado Springs or Durango or something, and there was a high-level chess tournament going on at some hotel, and I, I could have been like seven or eight, but my parents, my brother was younger, two years younger. We went in, and we saw some people later. I found out that there were some, you know, top U.S. players there. It was a, it was a top tournament. Uh, but probably my fav- favorite experience is uh, the world championship between Carlson, who is a f- current world champion and, and strongest player in the world from Norway. He was playing the uh, Russian uh, Sergei Karyakin, who was the challenger. So every two years now, it's there's a cycle where there's a there's a candidates playoff where the uh, ten best players, let's say, in the world. Um, have a showdown with each other. They do a round robin, and the winner of that gets to play a challenging match against the world champion. And that match is usually about 20 games long. Uh, They do one game a day, well, two days, and then they have an off day, and then two days. So it takes a couple weeks to get through that. Um, Wow. In fact, I think the the format that I saw, maybe it was only 12 games total. So I I bought tickets to go see that. I was living in Montreal at the time, and the tournament was agreed upon between the two players to happen in New York City. They had some big sponsorships. I mean, this these kinds of stakes are very high. The, the elite players in the world are quite, well, I mean, they're very rich. And then after the top 10 or 15 players, it's it's kind of pittance what you what you make from a tournament. Um, yeah. Like with the, the last tournament I played in, the World Open, the top prize in the 
in the open division, which anybody can play in. I think the top prize was uh, $20,000 or $30,000. Okay. Which, oh, wow, that's a lot of money. But it's usually split by two or three, maybe four grandmasters. And that's only if you win that tournament. There's only one of those a year, and it's very hard to win that. Yeah. Um, so you can't make a living on on that kind of thing. If you win one major tournament a year, which is rare, it's only twenty, thirty thousand is, is nothing. And you might only get five thousand of that. So it's it's hard to make a living. Um, but the top tournament players, the top, you know, elite ten or fifteen, they often get uh money just to show up to tournaments. So they might get invitation money. So right. hey, come come play in our big tournament to make it more elite and, and we'll give you fifty thousand dollars. And they probably likely get a lot of sponsorships and uh, tons of sponsorships. Yeah. So the world championship, I mean, you're not paid to play in it, but the 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 uh, winner gets, I think, one one point five million, and the and the loser, I mean, which is the second, he gets maybe three quarters of a million, it's something like that. And it's just two, and it's just two guys that are that are playing over the course of these several weeks. Is that right? Well, it's probably two weeks, and it's it's the world champion playing the challenger, and then you know, if, obviously, if the world champion wins, he retains his title, uh, even if there's a draw, there he kind of retains the title, and there are tie breaks after that. And yeah, let me ask you. So, yeah. it, is it, as far as like the format, like the, so, the one you went to, it, it was a twelve game set. If mm-hmm. um, would they play all twelve games, even if, for example, the the winner, um, you know, got to one, or or it was clear he that 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 the that the, that the other person could not Couldn't. overcome. Yeah, do they stop if, or do they keep playing? No, they would they would stop, but that rarely happens. They're so close and mm-hmm. very hotly contested that. Uh, you know, usually these these series, the first five six games are drawn because they're kind of getting used to each other and and trying to figure out each other, like who's done what kind of preparation. Because you do a lot of preparation for these, and each player, by the way, has what are called seconds. So Carlson has a team of maybe three or four other grandmasters where they they study a lot and look up lines and try to figure out what would be the best way to approach. Uh, playing the challenger so they might look up now with computers it's it's easy um and they might just look up every game that the challenger has played in the last 10 years let's say and study the uh certain patterns that he's openings he's used to and prepare certain lines that he might be uncomfortable with or that you might be comfortable with and and also the challenger has a team of people that he works with well i say he it's always so far has been he but there have been some women I mean, there's a women's world champion as well, uh, championship. And there was one woman, as I mentioned before, you did Polgar, who did make it into the top elite. She was ranked number eight in the world at the time when uh, Kasparov was the world champion. That was a few world champions ago. But uh, yeah, she didn't quite play a challenging match, but she was uh, certainly a contender for that. Right. Um, so yeah, it's it's pretty fascinating. And so so you're there, and and Carlson is playing to say say the Russian name again, Karyakin. Yeah, Karyakin. Okay. Yeah. And did you have a rooting interest, or were you there just as a like a uh, this is amazing? Oh, this is amazing. I, I like Carlson because uh, you know he's Scandinavian, and I just I like him. And uh, I'm yeah, Scandinavian. I actually thought Karyakin was was not the challenger that should have gone, in my opinion, and and the candidates playoff tournament before that he got a little bit lucky on some tie breaks i was kind of rooting rooting for this other guy uh fabiano caruana who's who's an italian-american player he he now plays for the states but he's he's played for both but um 
I thought he would be the challenger. He didn't quite quite get it. But anyway, Karyakin was very strong. He had great preparation. I they're in a separate room, in a soundproof room with uh, glass, and then that's in a that's in enclosed. And so you have to buy a this ticket. Is incredible. To, yeah, you have to buy a ticket to the event first, which I did, and and I also traveled to New York. So I bought a a bus ticket to New York. I got to stay with some friends. Which which saved me a lot, and then I bought tickets to the event. They were eighty dollars a ticket, you know, for for each day. I think uh, so. I bought two tickets because I I wanted to see two games. One where they they alternate colors, so you know Carlson would get white. I think I saw games five and six, so Carlson would get white one day, and then the next day Karyakin would get white because there's a slight advantage to having white. And then after every two games, there would be a rest day. So that's okay. actually when I traveled back. So I got to see those two games. You know, you go in, you obviously they have to check. They, they have to make sure that you don't have any devices because nowadays with the technology, it's very easy to transmit uh, transmit things. Um, the players are, of course, checked and they're monitored the whole time they're playing. So even they each have a green room you know, to go to the bathroom, take a break, eat something. But when they go to those rooms, each has a monitor from the tournament to make sure that they're not using a computer or going to a cell phone, or going, you know, calling somebody and getting some moves, whatever, sent to them. Um, wow. And then the the glass that we saw, it's it's only one way because again, they could be they could have a you know, a mole or somebody in the audience looking on uh, that would give them signals or signs as to which move to do, and so that they don't they want to discourage any cheating. Um, they really did a great job with it too, and and in that room, that sort of viewing room, that was dark. And there were screens, of course, a couple screens showing the moves and the moves outside. So they only allowed maybe 20 or 30 people in that separate room um, at a time. So there would be a minimum of uh, amount of, mo- of noise and uh, no flash, you know, no, you know, no pictures. You can they have monitors there watching everybody, making sure you don't do flash photography, because if somebody's concentrating, they see that it's very distracting. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, and then it, they have some grandmasters outside in a booth doing some commentary on the game while it's being played because these are long games, you know, these are five. Well, that's the other other question. Do, do they like when they go to the green room, do, do, do typically do they each take a move and then take a break or do they go come out separately sometimes? Like what, what does that look like? It depends. I mean, the very beginning of the game, the first eight to 10 moves are, they're mostly just sitting out there. They kind of know what they want to go into, but when it gets to, between let's say the 12th and the 20th move some of those take a little bit longer some not so long there are some forcing lines and variations where you just have to go through it but occasionally yeah if, if you've been sitting there for an hour and, and now all of a sudden your your opponent has a very hard move to make and might take 20 minutes carlson might go to the green room and, and vice versa karyakin would go to his little room and relax you know or you just sit in your chair there and just look at the board i mean they have very comfortable chairs they can relax um and, and as a observer, there's psychology too to it and as an observer are you able to like in between moves or when they're in the greenville can you can you green room can you discuss like with the audience like hey what do you think you know or is well, it pretty much well, like everybody's you're just always to... talking outside i mean uh yeah because you're outside the, the the forum at that point yeah in the main area you know it, it took place in the convention center so there's a huge uh, area you know i don't know ten thousand square feet or something and a lot of people out there, they have two huge video monitors showing the moves. And these are, you know, 10 foot or 20 foot monitors where everybody can follow the moves and everybody's on their phones and checking with computer lines. And the commentators are in their little box and 
it's so easy today today to check with computers, but they try to give um, analysis of what it would be like to play as a human, you know, as a thought of yeah. a human. But um, yeah, everybody's talking. I actually met a few people there I, just because we were looking at the position and and there might be a move on the board and, and it's a tough position and there might be 20, move, 20 minutes between that and the next move. And everybody's thinking, what should he do? You know, there are two, three, four good options and, and discussing, no, I think he should do this. Well, like my computer says this. Well, my computer is another, <laughs> is a newer version than your, and it says that you should do this. And well, but a human would not, you know, there is lively discussion going on. And, okay. So I think this might be a good segue a little bit into, into computers and computers and chess, because that's a fascinating, fascinating thing. Like people versus computers. And and we can talk about, I, I don't know where you want to go with this, but, <clears throat> but you know, there are computers, I mean, famous ones, deeper blue is probably the most famous one yeah. that, um, you know, that, that plays chess, but, um, and, and we can talk about, you know, what's better, who went, you know, all those things, but I'm more curious, like the psychology of it. Like when you say a computer would do something versus a person would not, what do you mean by that? Well, those those are two big things. The chess psychology and and uh, strategy, and I would say playing style. That's um, that's tough. Each player has his or her own playing style, and if you look at the elite players, you know some are maybe very aggressive, some are more defensive, some are more strategic, some are more positional, and um, I, I think with with the like maybe at the very end result, the question always is. Can chess be figured out? Can chess be solved? Is it a solvable thing? Like uh, simpler games, connect four or or tic tac toe. You know, we we know there are finite answers. You know, you, you right. can play tic tac toe and you can always get a draw if you know how to how to do the rules. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with three D tic tac toe, but there's such thing as three D tic tac toe. And if you go first, there's a forced win. You can always win. Um, and if you know those little tricks, you, you just that's, but chess is much more complicated, which is why it's been used as a vehicle for um, for computer development and for AI in the last really 40, 40 years, maybe 50 years, going back to the 70s, because uh, it, it was a way to really challenge a supercomputer to see how fast it was. But the, the methodology for developing a computer program is much different than how humans think. And now the newest computer programs are programmed more like human thinking, uh, neural networks. So the de- I'll, I'll tar- start a little bit with the development of computers. I, I'll go back to a, an English grandmaster named Anthony Miles, who was pretty big in the 60s, 70s, and kind of early 80s. And uh, unfortunately, he died sort of young. And But he, he was one of the top players in the world. And uh, I forgot which which company developed a program to play him and I don't know, six game match. And I think he just crushed it, you know, six zero there, there was no chance for a computer back in those days, even the, the cray supercomputers of the eighties, they just could not handle um, grandmasters. They, they could beat masters. They got to that level, but not beyond. And then the next, um, there were some small ones that played other like Karpov and some other champions. But the next big one was in my lifetime, um, when I was in middle school, Deep Blue. So the first iteration that IBM developed put millions of dollars into this. And this was supposed to be the greatest chess program. It will beat humans and blah, blah, blah. Well, it played Garry Kasparov, who was the world champion at the time, and arguably the best player ever in some ways. I think Carlson will eventually become sort of seen as that. 
but but Gary Kasparov held the world championship for so long and he was so dominant. Um, he and Karpov were, were sort of rivals, but uh, Anatoly Karpov, another Russian. But yeah, Kasparov was so strong. And anyway, he played deep blue. This was supposed to be like this crush humans. Well, and he won. He it, it, But it was by a very small margin that he won. And that those were that started to make, get a little scary for humans because I think we get scared of the idea of the machine, the machines winning and sort of taking over this sort of matrixy idea. I was going to say, we, we, we've seen Terminator and matrix too often. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's not quite how it works, but the idea that, you know, somehow human ingenuity has to always prevail and it can't just be a brute force method because what the computers are doing is uh, we, we talked about variations uh, last podcast and, and how each move um, branches out. There's like a tree that branches out in terms of what moves can be done after that. So on right. the very first move, you know, for white, white alone can make 16 pawn moves and four different knight moves. So 20 moves. And then black can make equally 20 moves. Now, not all of those moves are equal. And we basically know that there are only five quote unquote, perfect moves for white for the first move, uh, which will lead to you know, a good game. Uh, nobody plays at the top level these other random odd moves. You know, it just they're not very good. And certainly after the second move, you wouldn't play another bad move, uh, right. what's considered bad. But the computer doesn't necessarily do that. It goes through every variation. And so it does after the first full move, that's 400 variations. A human doesn't think even think of those 400 and only knows the top five or six. And we, we've memorized those openings. In fact, most humans uh, at the top level, grandmasters, they know some of these openings, the, the theory at least, to 20 moves sometimes uh, in many different lines, many different uh, branches of that tree. A computer might have an opening book, which you know you might program in. But if it doesn't, it just brute forces all those moves. And by the time you get to move three, four, five, you're, you're in the trillions of of options. Well, I was going to say, like, how would a computer, because uh, obviously the computer to a certain degree has to think ahead. Like it has to think not just about that one move, but, but what are the options then that the, that the human person is going to do has therefore, which, you know, there, there, there becomes a, a stack upon stack of moves that needs to be considered, you know, to, to make the, the move itself, or, or am I overcomplicating it? Well, well, this is the horizon effect. And when you're dealing with AI or anybody in computer science or engineering, that's, uh, that's what they always talk about. What is the horizon of visualization for a computer? How far, like, is it solvable? And so far we've seen the answer is kind of no, because the computers get faster and faster. Now with the possibility of quantum computing, uh, maybe, maybe we'll see. I mean, computers right now, um, or at least let's say deep blue, I don't know what it was, but I think it could calculate, you know, 10 million moves a second or 10 million variations. That seems like a lot. But when you look at the, the possible chess positions that are, that are available in a, you know, forever or, or whatever, the whole game, some mathematician calculated it's, it's two with like 200 zeros after it, right. some absurd amount. So it doesn't and, matter and if you can do a billion moves. You're never going to get to the very end. So there's the a chess horizon. Player, and a chess player doesn't think those terms. You know, I, I imagine, like, if it's anything like, like, for example, with music, for me, like, when I look at a score, I, I, I immediately see patterns, which allows me to not 
look at the score, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Like I can immediately look and see, okay, that's a fourth. That's this, that's this. Um, I, I, and, and at least give you a good idea of how to attack a piece, you know? And I imagine when I play, you know, sports, it's the same thing. Like, like you, you could do crazy things on a football field, you know, have weird formations, all kinds of stuff. But in the end, like you have a set pattern because you know it works and then you know how to expect and you know how to attack those specific things. So you don't think in terms of, okay, what if I put the center over by the, the sideline, you know? <laughs> well, even I would go further than that. You, your body doesn't calculate. You're not consciously aware of, oh, to run, I actually have to move my arm. But to move my right. arm, I actually have to move this muscle and that muscle and this muscle. And Oh, but that's connected to this bone. I have to move this ligament. And oh, I have to send this signal. Like, you just right. run. We are masters of batching. Yeah, and that's how the that's a neural network. And so when you learn chess, when a human learns chess, they're they're chunking bits of, bits of information. And you know, a, a grandmaster has many more patterns or familiarity with many more patterns than, let's say, a common layperson or even somebody like me. I have a ton of patterns in my head because I've seen all of them and I know kind of what to do in those situations. And some, uh, maybe some similar situations I could figure out quickly because it's close enough to a certain pattern. Right. Um, and they, they, it also they, allows you to, allows you to be creative within those patterns and say, okay, you know, how can I subvert this pattern? Yeah. And sometimes those things work and, and oftentimes they don't, you know, a grandmaster in a world championship match might come up with a new move in a certain opening that everybody's just said, ah, we, we always do on move 12. This is the strongest move, or these are the two strongest moves. Well, maybe they do a third move, which hasn't really been played a lot or tested a lot. And so then, then people are on their own. And so a lot of people use that as a surprise tactic too. Um, so, so we go back to computers. Does that give the computer in a way an advantage? Because if more one advantage could be like they could pull out a move that, that, that maybe you would not like a high level chess player wouldn't see this particular move. And all of a sudden it kind of throws them off because it's not part of the pattern. I think, yeah, I think at this or, point, what, the what biggest it, difference between a computer and a human, um, like a, a human will cons- will consider all those moves that a computer will. Computer will consider every move possible in that position, and every maybe going down the tree branch after that for ten or fifteen, you know, however many billions of moves they can calculate at this point, maybe trillions of moves. It still isn't going to get to the end of the game, but um, uh, you know, they they might might choose the the plan that's that's most calculated out to have the advantage but here's the thing a human might see a certain move but might not play it for psychological reasons um Mm. they'll say oh well i i could win that pawn but it just it opens things up and it gets very tactical where you've got to calculate a lot of things and just it just looks scary you know you, you think opening up the position i don't know how comfortable i would be computer doesn't have any feelings so right. It, it doesn't think about how comfortable I would be. It just says, well, that's the best, you know, that, that gives me the pawn. And I, I can, computers great at defending and just finding the best ways to get out of things. Um, but I tell you, defending takes a huge toll psychologically. So if you're playing somebody and they're slightly stronger and you're always having to, you know, put up the defenses, uh, it's, it's tough to keep doing that and last and last and last. I've, I think I'm pretty good at defending and I've, I've always put up that, that uh, stronghold, I guess, and try to find my way out of things. 
but it's very draining and people don't want to be put in that position all the time. Some grandmasters have that style. They're much more, like I said, defensive style. Some are more attacking um, and some are good at just kind of grinding it out. It's like, okay, this is even. Let me try to get tiny advantages that keep adding up. But a computer just doesn't think of that. It just, they just do the best move. And now uh, computers have gotten just so much stronger. Uh, the program, so after Deeper Blue, so after Deep Blue, um, Kasparov won, but not by a big margin. Then Deeper Blue beat Kasparov, and that was the turning point. After that, you know, computers were stronger. It was a contentious match because there were some glitches, and, and it turns out that Kasparov in one of the games had a saving grace, a, a move that could have drawn the game instead of lost the game, which could have you know, altered the outcome potentially. And he had a very good game where he could have maybe won and he drew. And, you know, those, those kinds of things happen. So where he lost by a, a point or something could have easily flipped. Um, mm. But since Deeper Blue, there have been many programs that have, have come out uh, such as now the, the strongest, well, up until a couple years ago, the strongest programs were Stockfish. That's a very strong program. Uh, Komodo is a strong one. And um, I can't remember. There are a couple other famous ones. But uh, Alpha there, Zero, I think you mentioned to me once. Oh, well, that's going to be a new one. So, Oh, that's a new one. Okay. Yeah. So uh, that up until about 2016 or 17, these programs had gotten stronger and stronger and the, you know, ninth version or, or whatever it was of Stockfish could crush the eighth version and the eighth version could crush the seventh version. So all of these, there are computer um, uh, tournaments as well, where they just put one computer against another and they just have it play you know, awesome. 20 games or something like that. And, and then they just tabulate all the results and they have all those on PGN. You can download all those games and analyze them. Yeah, uh, which is useful. which is very useful. Yeah, if you're developing some sort of opening. So, in any case, the the strongest computers now. We talked about ratings before, and humans. There are a few humans who have broken that twenty eight hundred barrier. Nobody's broken the twenty nine hundred barrier, but Carlson's gotten close. His highest rating was like twenty eight eighty or something like that. Wow. So two thousand eight hundred eighty. Um, there have only been maybe ten grandmasters in history that have broken that 2800 barrier maybe a couple more i mean kasparov i think was the first that officially did he had a, he had like a 2840 rating which was the record for a long time and, and some others have gotten in the 2820s and whatever but but carlson's crushed that so but the high the stockfish the highest rating stockfish achieved was like 3300 or 30, oh, wow. 3400 you know like 500 points above it's it's not even a match and so now any match that would be somewhat entertaining between a human and a computer, uh, the computer has to give odds. And and some of the top players have played computers, like Hikaru Nakamura is a very famous uh, chess player from the U.S. And uh, now he, he's probably the f most famous in uh, in the general public because he has a Twitch channel. You know, he streams a lot. He's, he's very engaging and entertaining and enterprising to watch and listen to. Um, he, he's kind of been controversial as a chess player, but he's, he's phenomenal as a chess player. So he um, he played a couple, I think Komodo, he played six games and Komodo gave him a pawn odd. So, you know, he just took off uh, a pawn at the beginning. And I think even maybe one or one move odd. So he got a free move and a free pawn. And I think the game, the match was drawn or something like that. I mean, it's, wow. that's how strong the computers are. Um, so anyway, that was kind of what the level was up until about th two or three years ago. 
and then um, onto the scene came this uh, this team. I, I don't remember if, where they were from, Japan or the United States, but they developed some programs um, to play chess and also to play Go. So Go is another game that's that's quite famous in Asia. It's not played so much in the States, but it's another huge test for computers. In fact, there are even more possibilities in a game of Go than in a game of chess. And there are grandmasters at Go, and they have different levels of what they are. Like when you get to the top level, it's almost like um, uh, martial arts. In karate, you'd have like a nine uh, black belt, ninth degree or something like that. So there, right. there are nine Dan or nine Don uh, Go grandmasters. I, may, I don't know if there's a 10 Don in the world. I, I don't think so. But um, they just are so good. Anyway. So uh, Alpha Zero was this program that came out and beat uh, beat a grandmaster first, and then beat the top player in the world of Go. We beat a nine don grandmaster, and that was just shocking. Like how how could it do that? And then this same um, program was adapted to chess and called I think it was Alpha Zero or or something similar, and uh, and it destroyed. So they obviously they there's no point in playing a grandmaster at this point because computers were already much stronger so they pitted it against this the strongest program at the time which was stockfish 9 and stockfish 9 had a rating of like 34 or 50 whatever it was uh so they they pitted this alpha zero which is a totally different way of computing it's it's called neural networking and okay. so again it's more the drawing from patterns and and it it actually they they set it up where it didn't know how to play chess and it would play chess against itself to see what what was working, what wasn't working, um, and oh, so wow. it would just play a million games against it. They would just you know set it and go for a couple months and just play a million games with yourself and and see what what works. And so it started to develop all these neural networks, all these patterns, and then they pitted it after a couple of years of development or more against Stockfish Nine, uh, hundred games, and it just destroyed it. It destroyed Stockfish Nine. I think it uh, it won like. 20 some games and and usually when things are pitted well there might be one or two points difference and most of the games are drawn so a typical game between stockfish nine and maybe komodo nine would be in a in 100 games they would draw 90 games and they would each win five games or one would win five and one would win four and they'd draw the other 92 91 games that, that would be pretty typical or maybe one really strong computer would win by two or three points out of 100 but, but very close. Anyway, this Alpha Zero won by you know, like twenty or thirty wins. Oh wow! I think two losses, something like that, and then sixty some odd draw, draws. So it just crushed. Uh, may, maybe even more wins. I can't remember the numbers, but it was so crushing. People just thought, was there a glitch? Was there a problem? I, is this true? What's happening? You know, what's the rating of this? There's no uh, way to even rate this computer. Maybe it's over four thousand. You know. Um, but but clearly there was a different way of playing and, and seeing the game. And it would it started making moves when you when you look at the moves. They only published, I think, 10 moves and the others were kept secret. I don't know if they've been published since. But the world got to see 10 games. Um, I think nine were wins and maybe one was a draw. It just crushing defeats for for this stockfish program. And some of the moves that were made were very long range plans. Like when we talk about in chess, a gambit, a gambit in normal parlance is you give something up to get something. Right. In chess, typically at the beginning, um, white usually plays gambits, although occasionally black does. But uh, you give up a pawn maybe to get 
to get your opponent out of position and to maybe control a certain sector of the board a bit more just to gain time. Uh, one of the famous gambits is called Queen's Gambit. That's what the what the movie is based on. And I'll, I'll just tell you what that is brief, briefly. Um, if you don't know what chess notation is, you can go to our the first podcast. I talk a little bit about the squares. They're, they're with letters and numbers. So Queen's Gambit basically goes where white plays D4. So the pawn in front of the queen moves two squares up and black plays D5 in response. So that's very typical, you know, two uh, squares up with his pawn. And then white plays C4. So the pawn next to it, which, uh, which then can be taken by black's pawn uh, on D5. So D5 could take C4 and that's pretty common. I mean, it's fine to take it. So when you look, think about it, after two moves, white has already given up a pawn, one point. It, that should be sort of it. That should be a loss, you'd think. But right. black had to take an extra move to do that. He got one of his pawns from the center out of the center, and now it's very vulnerable. It can be taken, and if white can eventually recapture that, um, he'll have the advantages in the center. So black, black is kind of pinning his hopes on keeping that pawn. Um, and then and trying to trying to withstand the storm of white's attack and maybe winning in the end white is trying to say you wasted a lot of time taking that pawn and if you're going to take time to defend it in the meantime i'm going to develop this attack which you won't be able to stop uh and so it's it's kind of a battle of the ages of who's better and and who can deploy their pieces the best to either defend the pawn sometimes black says you know what i'm not going to defend the pawn i'm going to develop my pieces let white take some extra time to take the pawn back just to get even with me. And in the meantime, I'm going to develop my forces a little bit better. So it's kind of a, you know, give or take, but the whole idea of a gambit is to give something up to, to get some long-term advantages, which aren't always so easy to see. Right. Um, and in these games between Softfish and uh, Alpha Zero, uh, Alpha Zero would, would give up these pawns in very strange positions or not at the very beginning, maybe later, and it was very like it was a human move that a human would do in a speed chess game just to throw off the opponent. But in a long game, we think I'm not going to do that. Like you can't you can't expect to actually get enough back for that. You, you just can't. But somehow um, Alpha Zero met, maneuvered the pieces in such a way that 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 one pawn that he gave up actually hurt the development of his opponent, and the wow. opponent just couldn't get the pieces out in the right fashion and. And in a way, it seemed like Alpha Zero was playing with more pieces because, you know, you, you might give up a pawn, your opponent will take it, but it cramps the position. And then just to get out of that cramped position, you might have to spend two or three moves to get out of it. And then you might still lose the pawn back. And in those two or three moves, you know, the opponent could develop two knights and a bishop and, and be coming down your throat. So, uh, but that might have happened 40 moves in the future. And so this wow. whole horizon effect was really put into question. Can it really lengthened it, huh? Yeah. Can computers really see that or, or just solve it? I don't know. Um, yeah. So that neural network, uh, which has only been in the last couple of years, has really thrown the, the computing world, the idea of uh, just human versus machine. It's kind of flipped that. And what we thought of as the best, strongest computer in the world, we just thought we were making incremental uh, adjustments and, and advances. Now it's just thrown wide open. We just made a huge, a huge leap. Well, and I think nobody the, thought that would happen. 
And one of the things, I mean, I love technology. So, so I, that, that stuff fascinates me, but the other thing from a, from a more human, um, even, even game related thing is, is, you know, how, uh, that's the kind of thing that like changes the game. Like, is that's the kind of thing that you start to, can you think of, um, does that create more creativity? In other words, if you start studying these things, does that not help other people's play? Or is that just beyond what human or humans are capable of? I think a little bit of both. I think that some of the moves that were made just surprised even the best grandmasters. They just could not compute that because it was like, you know, there's already a horizon effect of, uh, of let's say, Carlson seeing what Stockfish could see, which is rated so highly above him. He, just, he would never have a chance to beat it. And then to have a computer crush that with something that's beyond, it's it's hard for, I don't know if a human can quite comprehend. Now we can. I mean, when you play out the, the game, you see what happens and as, uh, what the result is. But I don't think anybody suspected some of some of those moves or thought they were just jokes like, yeah, that's not really going to happen because it, it looks cool and it'd be, it'd be great in a little friendly match to throw somebody off, but the computer won't really take it seriously. And, and they did. Um, the other, the other thing is like what we've discussed with music, you know, our CDs helpful, our recordings helpful. And um, are, com- are computers going to destroy the game of chess or enhance it? And I think it's a little bit of both. You know, when for, uh, computers first came on the scene, it wasn't much of a threat because the, any grandmaster could beat a computer. But then with Deep Blue and Deeper Blue, it really became a question, you know, do people play chess anymore? Hasn't it been solved? Um, we're never going to play a perfect game. Like a computer can play a quote-unquote perfect game. Now, that was the thought. But that's always the mentality when you have big shifts in, so, in society. You know, that's right. the sort of science a fiction approach. Okay, uh, this is this is over. I, I don't know. When typewriters came out, people thought, <laughs> "Yeah, well, writing's over. You know, nobody's going to learn yeah. how to speak anymore." And well, then they did. Let's close the patent office. Nothing else can be yeah. invented. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, then, when computers came out, okay, well, there's nothing more to do. And now computers double their speed. You know, every I don't know what it is. Every year they double, or every ten years they they double, something like that. But uh, yeah, and and still. Things have managed to go on, even with the, those computers being the way they are. So let's. I want to go back to your experience at the World Championship and, and ask another question mm-hmm. in in relates to that, and and maybe talk about, um, you know, the the game and 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 the idea of um, again in, in golf, for example, you don't you don't play the 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 man, you play the course. Uh, they say in in um, poker, you don't play the game, you play the man. Um, in chess, obviously you have to know the rules and you have to, but, but is, um, are you trying to, in, in, um, impose your strategy on somebody or are you trying to play like how, what's the, what, what are, what are some of the angles that people are trying to play from a psychological standpoint and, and how would that manifest in a game? Yeah. It's interesting. You brought the other two games up, um, and I think of golf like it's easier to play the course and not the man because you really are alone. But right. there is an element of playing the man, too, or the woman, as it were, because you might be at the last hole or getting up to the last hole and you know where where things stand. And I don't know, maybe you play a slight or you're affected or play a, a slightly different chip shot or 
maybe you're saying, oh, I really have to catch up. So I'm going to use a wood here to go farther than, than an well, iron. I think when I, so, it's funny when, when you say that, like, I think I was thinking of it differently. Like, do you try to play to your strengths or do you try to play to your opponent's weaknesses? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. Um, yeah, of course, it's easy to say a little bit of both. Right. So I'll, I'll, I'll say, I'll go with poker as well, because I, I've always had a dislike of poker, not, not just the gambling aspect of it, but the idea that the, I always thought that there was too much luck, um, but there is a lot of math behind it. And in fact, it's gotten much harder now to win any of the, any of the big tournaments. When, when Chris Moneymaker, I think he was one of the first big winners of, uh, of a tournament. Yeah, he was just an amateur, you know, fun guy. He wasn't a professional player. He hadn't studied it. And at that time, you know, you really could win. Now you have so many of these um, analysts and mathematicians and people, very smart people playing poker. And it, there's a lot of calculation and they're really playing on, on uh, game theory that has been developed and studied over the last 20 years. Uh, there are still good players and people can make money here and there with, with chumps and all that. And there are actually a lot of chess players that go over to poker because the mentality and the mindset of chess makes you quite good at poker. Um, but still, you're you're kind of playing the person. Your your uh, uh, your emotions get quite involved, and you have to try to keep those out. So when it comes to chess, there there's a lot less luck, I'll say, at the very top end. But there's some element of I don't know if I'd call it luck, but something of maybe you're tired one day, maybe you don't feel good, maybe the conditions aren't perfect, maybe you had a little bit of a brain lapse for one line on that one day where that one game mattered, whatever it was, uh, I'd chalk that up to luck. Um, and maybe the computers can eliminate that because they don't have the emotion. So that that's, I think, why it's been so tough to play computers. And that's what I remember Kasparov was lamenting when he played Deeper Blue. He just, he had a really hard time playing it because he wasn't getting the communication back. He He was so well known as being a like a tyrant over the board, just this overwhelming force of personality. And, and it didn't uh, affect deeper blue and, at all. And it didn't affect him at all. Yeah. Right. It didn't affect the computer, but uh, Kasparov was affected. And when people played him, you know, they might have a, there were very few people in the world that had a winning streak against him. And still may, there might only be two, two players that have a winning streak against him. And so when you go up against it, you're just psychologically, it's tough. Like, man, here's a world champion. I've lost more than I've won against him. It's, it's going to be grueling. Um, and the computer, again, no, doesn't worry. So in that case, you're really playing the board. Um, but when humans are playing each other, there's a lot of psychology. There's, and it's not, it's not overt all the time. It's not so much like, a, you know, UFC matches or whatever the, the, contestants come out before and make this big show of oh, right. I'm going to be in you know getting up in each other's grill and uh, which I think is just stupid but whatever that's that's part it's of the all hype. show there come on it's all a show and it's it is meant to um to uh you know get in the other person's head by the way I don't know if you're a fan of Key and Peel I love Key and Peel but there's a cute little clip they have on that where there are two UFC fighters you know both tough guys <laughs> it's hilarious to watch so if you if you haven't watched it because one guy's like so super crazy and it just scares me. Oh, I'll have to check that out. That's pretty rad. Um, but that's a lot of psychology and, and that's not the kind of psychology that, that uh, chess is about. I mean, there's a certain 
when I might play a new new opponent or something, maybe even the banter before the, or just meeting them, the way that you, you talk or the way you make eye contact or don't, the aloofness that you have, the confidence that you exude, all those are, are nonverbal signals that you're sending and hopefully um, winning winning that psychological battle. And that happens even before the game. Um, you know, I, I remember one guy I played, I was in high school, I didn't really know about this stuff so much but we were talking it was at the national uh, scholastic championships and i was in a fairly low level but he told me before the game oh good luck you know and he said some some he's pr- it was probably just you know made up stuff who knows but he said yeah I'm, i lost some rating this year I, I i'm in this level usually i'm in a higher level i've i've beaten a lot of masters in my life and i'm just this is weird to play down here you know Okay, maybe that's a little bit of ego, but I actually was like, "Oh my gosh, this guy's probably really good." And and uh, I'm I'm why is he play? Why do I have to play him? We played a game. I actually made some silly mistakes early on. He got a slight advantage. I I you know tried to keep my my cool and and stay in it, but he won. And now I look at the game and I think I I didn't play all that well, and neither did he. He wasn't that strong. Right. Um, but that that psychology really got to me and. Um, yeah, little, little things can bother, can bother somebody. during. So let me, I want to ask maybe, uh, I want to combine two questions here in a little bit. And cause I think they are related. Um, and it's this, so what, what are the attributes of a good chess player? What would you look for if you're looking for somebody, um, you know, who, yeah, what are the, what are the attributes of a good chess player and how can chess if somebody's interested in chess, um, why would that help them? For example, making decisions in real life, like outside of chess, why, what, what's the benefit to chess outside of, of chess itself? And, and I'm not like, I think people should play games and have a good time in and of themselves, like for the benefit of, of that alone. That's cool. But, but it's always nice when, when, you know, you can, you, something else is, is added to your life. Some real world application of it. maybe. Right. Yeah. Well, the first part, I think, um, I, I wonder if you mean what what attributes make a good chess player? Would I say as a, having a student, or what are the attributes of the that make world champions or top players? Yeah, it's the top players in the world. Like, what what do they have in common, if if anything? Yeah, that's kind of like saying what what do millionaires have in, in common? Right. <laughs> but but in this case, you know, I mean, obviously, the ability to analyze a board and 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 look beyond. You know, being able to see the unseen has to be one thing I would think. Yeah, pattern recognition I think is a way, way a very important thing. But then it's almost a chicken or egg thing. Like, are the greatest, um, are the great chess players good at recognize? Uh, they're good at recognizing patterns because they're great chess players, or are they great chess players because they're good at recognizing patterns? And I'm sure they both develop. Uh, nowadays, there are grandmasters that are 11 and 12 years old and 13 years old, and you know they're, they're just so good by then. So I think what makes that, yeah, a little bit of talent, a le- little bit of, or maybe a lot of talent and a lot of interest, but also good guidance, good coaching, good training, and a lot of time, just like with something musical or developing a language or whatever you develop as a kid that you want to get good at. You know, you want to be a great basketball player. Yeah, you've got to have some talent that could be uh, you know, I, I read this, I've read this book, Talent Code, uh, which I don't know, I think a lot of people take that and think that there's no such thing as talent, which I, I don't agree with. I think it just depends on how you define what talent is. 
talent could be perseverance. You know, having having that gene or having that culture or genetic makeup or or mentality of persevering. Or enjoying something enough. <laughs> or enjoying something enough to put the time in. Like that, that could be considered a talent. A talent doesn't have to be a physical attribute alone. Um, or just a mental, like, yeah, in basketball, if you're not over six feet, you're going to have a, a heck of a hard time. Are there any people that played in the NBA that were under six feet? Of course, Muggsy Bowes was phenomenal, you know, but that that's really the exception to the rule. Most NBA players now are not even over six feet. They're all over six, five, and, and many are over seven feet. That That's a talent. You know, it's, it's a physical attribute that you had no control over. You were just given that. Now there are plenty of six or there are plenty of seven foot people in the world that are, are terrible at basketball. Um, maybe they didn't have some other things that make a great basketball player. Maybe they didn't have a love for the game. Maybe they didn't have good hand-eye coordination or didn't want to develop those things. So to to get uh, to be a good chess player, you've got to have a lot of different things working in your favor. But I think it's it's loving the game, being in a culture, a family culture, or, or larger than that, where you can develop it and enjoy it and have good influences around you, having a, enough time with it, being good at pattern recognition, patience. Patience is a great thing to have, um, you know, to, to be able to sit still and listen and or, or concentrate for long periods of time on, on an individual task. That's very hard. Uh, and humans have to be trained to do that. And most aren't, you know, and I, I would say music is another one of those that really trains that the, a, a few similar attributes. Uh, and that maybe that's why I've gravitated toward the, towards those things, or maybe I've become better at concentrating and, and doing those things because I've done music and chess growing up, you know, it's, again, they both affect each other. So um, now you said, what are some of the real world applications and again chess is just for me a beautiful game in and of itself it's so rich it's got a rich history there, there's so much to do and i could be i could have endless fun you know on a desert island playing chess um but i think there are a lot of things uh, like those attributes that i mentioned that are applicable in life you know how often do you need to be at a board meeting and and sit and concentrate and take a lot of information in and parse it and try to put it back together and plan ahead. I, we do these things all the time in life. Uh, most people are not very good at that stuff. Now, does being a chess player necessarily make you good at those things? No. Uh, I think it helps, yes. But I know ch plenty of chess players who are, who are awful at, at other aspects of life, you know, and I don't mean just right. socially, you know, the stereotype type, they can't talk to girls or whatever. Like maybe they cannot um, plan a lot of their other life. They're just haphazard. They're all over the place. They're, they're, they're messes, you know, right. um, that, that can, that can happen. Um, I don't think the caricature, like in, in Bobby Fisher, searching for Bobby Fisher, some of the caricatures of these grandmasters who are just your nutty old, uh, a guy muttering to himself and going crazy. No, I, that doesn't really happen, but uh, you know, it, it will help. Now I think a lot of people use that, use this idea and take it too far. I mean, I, I know actually a fairly, fairly prominent musician who always lauds this over people saying that uh, I won't say if it's a he or she, but they, they um, must be great at organizing and doing such and such because they're a good chess player. And I actually would say that this person is not a fantastic chess player and pretty average. Um, 
and, but a, but a great musician. And, uh, but I mean, was, that's not the reason you, you can't just say, well, I'm going to be great at all these things because I play chess. Right. Um, it might help. It might help. I think. Well, and I think that's, that's the thing. Like if, like, for example, you know, obviously if I were to play tennis, you know, there are a lot of real world things like outside of the game, you know, I'm, I get in better shape. Um, my, my physical stamina gets, gets greater. So I can see in chess, like, like the, the ability to think ahead, the ability to, to, to ask interesting questions, to, to find answers, the, the ability to, to, um, you know, strategize both long and short term. I mean, I could see those as all parts of, 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 I guess, skills, that can be acquired and enhanced by playing chess. Yeah. I mean, it has a reputation of being sort of the smart person's game, if you will. Tennis, by the way, and I, I grew up playing tennis and I, I got to the state level and I was in varsity in high school and, and, and I love the sport. And it's a great one because you're, you're not really um, colliding with other people. So I, I always right. like that. And it's, <laughs> it's much safer than, yeah, you can pull like, my father was a good, was a good tennis player and, Actually, my um, he when he he got remarried and uh, his wife, her two kids were were pros. I mean, real okay. pros. One one of yeah. them. So my I guess my stepbrother, he's about fifteen years older than me, uh, but he he beat Pete Sampras. Oh wow! The years, so you know he was he was top top player. Um, so yeah, I love tennis, and I think there's a lot of strategy in tennis, and there's a lot of you know small nuanced things and and planning and uh reading your opponent and and quick decision making very quick split second decision making you have to do uh and so that develops your brain a lot now do you have people that are uh, ceos of boards that say you know i'm 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 great at planning because i play tennis no nobody says that they always say i'm great at planning because i play chess that's just that's just the one that people use and i guess there's something to that i i don't know if it's always that um it's not always the direct correlation. And like I say, maybe, maybe those people were good at planning anyway. And that's what got them into chess and not that chess all of a sudden turned them into another person. Um, maybe it sharpened some of those skills. Yeah. Fantastic. Here's the other thing I love is, is especially today's technology, um, you know, the ability to learn chess, you know, that like it's so wide open, so many p- more people can have access to chess. So, so maybe let's finish up with, you know, where, what's the best way for somebody to go about, you know, learning chess or getting involved, you know, what are some, some maybe applications or some um, opportunities that people in their local area might, might be able to find? Sure. And, and I'll tie this into how it's in popular culture and how it's become more well-known, I think. And, and I think, yeah. The two movies uh, or two shows, well, one was a movie, one was a show. Uh, first one was Searching for Bobby Fischer. That came out in, I think, the 90s. Wow. Yeah, I think that's right. And maybe, uh, maybe early 2000s, but it was definitely, you know, yeah, it's a been while a long back. time, a couple decades. And that was based on the life of, um, it's a little bit Hollywoodized, but it was based on the life of this kid, Josh Waitskin, uh, who, who's about my age. Actually, I met him because at one of the scholastic high school tournaments that I played at, he was there signing autographs with Bruce Pandolfini, who was the, the famous chess coach from the movie and you know, very, very nice man, actually, and, and a great chess coach. He's written a lot of good chess books. So that really brought uh, the brought chess to a wider public. And that hadn't happened in the United States since uh, Bobby Fischer won the world championship in the early 70s. So there's a long time where chess was kind of dormant. And then here comes this great movie and everybody 
I remember when I was still young and, and people were just quoting that thing. Oh, you are you Bobby Fischer? In fact, I remember I went to Russia on, on an exchange trip in 1995, I believe, for three weeks. And I just, that was one way for me to connect. Chess was always a social thing. So I, we went with our, our little school group to a play. And then afterwards, uh, we were in the park and I saw some older men playing chess. I just went over. I, I spoke very little Russian at the time. I mean, I, I had to take a crash course so I could get by. But basically, we just talked in chess parlance. And they, they said, oh, American, like, oh, you, you're Bobby Fischer. That's the one name they, they kind of knew. And <laughs> no, I'm not, but I'll play. And I actually did fine. And they, they were, it was fun. But um, a lot of people finally learned, oh, Bobby Fischer, he's, he's a famous chess player. Like maybe in piano, people know who Van Cliburn is or who Horowitz is. And that's about it. So in chess, everybody knows Bobby Fischer. Right. Um, nowadays, there are a few more personalities that people know because they've become, they've become famous online. But um, uh, anyway, those, those movies really helped. And I think there was a lot in that movie that uh, – that was quite accurate in the portrayal of, of what it takes, you know, to make it. Of course, it's not like, oh, he, here's a, ta- a kid who's never played and all of a sudden he's talented. He goes to the park and uh, he beats people. No, you really have to study. Um, but, and in The Queen's Gambit, by the way, which I highly recommend everybody watch, there are a lot of great things in that. Uh, the way the the pieces were uh, were set up, all the positions in that movie were were set up or designed for that movie by Kasparov and a, and a team of some other people uh, who were uh, who were on the movie set, and they were basically consultants. And so all the all the angles and camera shots of games are actual games. And oh wow, uh, and that, that's that takes great. you know that's that's a detail that I think a lot of chess players appreciate about that kind of show because it's like musicians. Whenever I watch a show with musicians in it, it usually it's faking, and it's so obvious that it's faking. And right. when somebody actually is playing, and of course, maybe it's dubbed over, it's such so pleasant to see that. Um, I know every other field has some equivalent of that, and that's why these YouTube videos of reactions are so big nowadays. You know, a lawyer will will look at uh, look at all these legal movies, like my cousin cousin Vinny, uh, analyzed by a lawyer, <laughs> right? Yeah, yes, analyzed by an actual cop. Yeah, and that's cute. And and yes, those things aren't hundred percent accurate, but I would say for the most part, most um, fields are fairly accurately portrayed. You know, I, I know a bit of the medical field. I, I have a pre-med and my dad's a doctor. So yeah, scrubs is not hundred um, <laughs> percent, but, but there's a lot in there that's quite accurate. Uh, and I would say music is one of the things that's, that's worst portrayed in movies and understood. And um and chess is, is not too far behind. And so that said, I think the Queen's Gambit did a great job of, uh, of portraying that, portraying what the tournaments were for the most part. Uh, again, some of the moves were made quickly, and of course that wouldn't happen, but they tried to do some time lapses. Uh, the whole aspect of studying and, and visualization of the pieces and learning openings, and a lot of that is, is really correct. Um, so I, I liked a lot of it. And the, the acting was great. The story behind it was was great as well. I mean, it's the the whole premise is a little bit unrealistic that this girl in the um, in an orphanage would never know how to play, and then saw the game and suddenly kind of know how to make moves and then beat somebody and go to a tournament. Right. At a but sport. obviously, that's the that's the vehicle being used to right. introduce people, which is great. Right. So there are some unrealistic things, but I think they they did a lot of it very well. Um, so how you know. It's so much easier to learn chess nowadays. There are academies, there are 
so many books for beginners out there. You can go online. You can get chess lessons from people. You know, I've, I've given chess lessons. I've taught at um, one of the academies here in, uh, in, Phoenix, in the Phoenix area, and I've taught at a couple uh, public schools, charter schools. Um, it's just very accessible. And some of the, the streamers that are out there, yeah, it might be hard to follow because they're, they're so good. Uh, I think of like Hikaru Nakamura, people like to watch him He's very fast. And he just calculates so incredibly quickly. It's like a human computer. Uh, but there are some other great players out there that have channels and they're very instructive. You know, there's, uh, I'll just mention a couple of them. There's, uh, well, okay, there's this guy in, in um, Canada, Eric Hansen. He's a grandmaster and lives in Toronto. He has, he's chess bra. Now, th those are, again, more for the fun and the entertainment. He's extremely fast and very good at calculating. Yeah. Um, there's a Gotham Chess, which is, this uh, IM, International Master Levy Rosman, um, who runs that. And he has some good instructive videos. Um, there's uh, Chess Network. There's this guy, Jerry, who's a self-taught sort of natural master. He has a lot of good instructive videos. Uh, and just a lot of other chess personalities out there who, who you can find and follow. And they might go over a game and analyze it. And, you know, that I wouldn't start with that. That's, that's once you already understand a bit of the, of the game. Um, there are some chess sites like chess.com and, and leechess.org. I have accounts on both. And, and you can just go there and play against computers or go and play against other humans, you know, in the world. And uh, it's great. I mean, online really opens up some possibilities. So it, it's really a game for everybody at this point. It's, it's so easy to access. It's a cheap game. You know, when you think of all these other right. things you can buy and a chess board and a set and even a nice heavy tournament plastic set you know you spend 30 40 bucks and you get a really nice set a clock if you want to get a clock you don't need one but you know it's like soccer is the is the poor man's sport in a way you know football <laughs> football costs a lot of money to play oh, yes and, it does and, and it's always i feel with music at least here in arizona football's big and so i always have students or, or prospective students like well we want our son to play football and always talking about prices and this and that. And it's like, how much do you pay just for your football equipment? Right. You know, or that dancing. Is, that's my favorite. Dancing, dancing oh. is so expensive, <laughs> you know? And they're like, how can we spend on piano lessons or buy music books or buy a piano? I was like, well, I know people that spend 20,000 a year on dancing. Yep. <laughs> and, and same with football. You go to a tournament, you pay for the team, you pay for your equipment, which changes every year. You know, you pay for the sports fee. It, it really adds up. So um, chess, chess is really cheap in a way. You, you get a board, you get a set of pieces, and you just hang out with some friends. And, and yeah, I don't know if I can say this on your podcast, but have a couple beers, you know, and yeah, and just have fun. And, and 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 I will say, like, um, it's been fun for me to watch my kids get into chess. You know, they really enjoy playing online. They enjoy. Um, you know, they just, it's a great game. Um, and you know, and, 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 and I was, <laughs> I don't know if this is a good or bad thing to say, very little influence on that part of their life. <laughs> I, mean, I showed them how to move the move, you know, how, how to move the, the pieces and, and kind enough. of some general stuff, but they took it from there and, and it's been fun to watch them learn and teach me some things. It's been yeah, great. That's, that's what you hope is that they'll be able to teach you something back. Yeah. So, yeah. so. Well, Elias, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing, again, this other passion of yours. Again, this is just so fun. Um, 
And, and we, before I let you go, what are some things that maybe if people want to support you, if people want to um, know what's happening in, in your life, either music or chess or anything related, what, uh, oh, sure. um, what, yeah. what kind of things are going on? Yeah, I wish I was set up for more of that stuff. A lot of your uh, guests that you have on, they have Patreons and all this. Right. I, I don't have any. Maybe I should. have books to sell. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I have CDs to sell. If, if anybody wants to learn a bit about me, obviously nothing through chess that I really advertise or do. I, I give chess lessons. But um, if uh, you can you can go to my YouTube channel. Uh, just look up my name, Elias Axel Pedersen, and you know subscribe to that. You can uh, purchase CDs through my website, eapetterson.com. Uh, so E-A-P-E-T-T-E-R-S-S-O-N.com. Um, that's always a way to kind of help me out. And I teach, you know, I teach piano and I give concerts. In fact, I, I am giving a concert. I'll I'll put this out. It's not to do with chess, but I'm giving you a piano recital. Uh, and three organizations are coming together to sort of sponsor that. And uh, that will be April 25th on Zoom. So if, if people are interested, they can go to, let's see if I remember the uh, website, it's tbsev.org backslash 2021 hyphen piano hyphen recital. That's a little bit long, but uh, maybe we can. We can put yeah, it. you can also go ahead and, and send either you know me a message or Elias a message, and and we'll get you that link. Yeah. Um, and and also you have the um, Arizona Piano Institute coming up pretty soon. Yes, quicker than um, I think. Yeah, actually, we're uh, that's another thing that I'm, I'm heavily involved in, and and thanks for bringing that up. I know you've gotten to partake a little bit in the past yeah. and had a student come and. Um, that uh, hopefully we'll we'll do a program this summer. We're we're looking to have it be online, but uh, right now we're doing a virtual solo competition. It's our first one, and our actually the deadline's tomorrow. So I don't know if anybody hearing this is it's not the target audience, but it is is something that we're trying to gain attraction with and and really develop here in Arizona, just to, to put Phoenix on the on the musical map, at least piano wise, so or at least help it develop in that direction. Well, and you and you and Jess and the, and the people over there have done just a magnificent job from what I've seen of, of putting together top people to do master classes and to and to participate and and including yourself. And, and, and it just I know a couple of years ago, you had your first concerto competition. Um, yep. mm-hmm. And I, it's, and it's I think great... you're expanding on that. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And I mean, we do it. It's a labor of love. Obviously, the, the board members, uh, it, it's it's not a job. It's it's all uh, free in our free time, what we do with it. But it's it's a labor of love. And uh, and we, we really like to see the students thrive. And hopefully we create a great environment for them. If you want to visit or see anything about that, uh, you can go to azpianoinstitute.org. You know, that's not related to chess, but it is related to a field of music. If you're interested in, in supporting um, that cause, it's it's a great cause. And then you also have your own festival in And I have Mexico. my own festival too. Yeah, so that I, I'm working. No, we got to let people know this the the, the greatness that you are, man. I, I you got to yeah, let people I, know. I wasn't it's bringing awesome. up all these musical things, but actually, That's I okay. started I started a festival in Albuquerque about uh, seven six seven years ago called Southwest Piano Festival. It was something that I thought about doing for many years, uh, and I finally got it together. It's it's in the process of becoming a 501c3. Actually, if, if there are any lawyers out there that want to work for free and no New Mexico law, no. That's, but seriously, I need to uh, get that to a 501c3 status so it can, it can be easy, more easily supported because thus far I've sort of um, just supported it with, with my own pocket, uh, my pocketbook. And so if anybody wants to support that, you can go to uh, 
passion. I just created the new website. So um, let's see, software, swpianofestival.org. SWPianoFestival.org. We'll put all these links in the show notes also. Sure. Yeah. And that, um, that's developing. So if anybody's interested in that, yeah, I, I appreciate the shout out for those things. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, again, thanks for being on the show. We're, we'll definitely, I think we'll be on next week with uh, Daniel Shapiro. Is that right? Is that, yeah, I think that's next week. Yeah. I think the 21st. Week. So, wow. It's crazy. We're, we guys, we have, we have some incredible guests coming up. I don't know. I, ho- I hope I didn't spill the beans too early on that. But we have incredible guests, guests coming up shortly. Uh, we, you know, we've had top-notch people, and, and it's just going to continue. So thanks again for being such a supporter of the show, Elias. Let's, uh, yeah, Let's go go play some chess tonight. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this is and if love remains. I'm Mike Lovett. Enjoy your evening. Bye.